I enjoy getting feedback on my messages, uh, including and perhaps almost especially when it is of a challenging variety or a question like, did you think about this or how does this connect with some other piece of scripture? That is a compliment to a speaker, not a disrespect to a speaker to say, how does this fit in with another passage? In fact, we remember in Scripture when Paul himself, that great apostle, went to speak to people in the city of Berea. And Scripture is, is, is describes for us that these people were honorable people because they searched the Scriptures to see those thing, whether those things that Paul was saying were true. They didn't just take the word of even an apostle of Jesus Christ. They searched the Scriptures. And when God's people come to me, having searched the Scriptures to say, is this thing so that you just said, it indeed is a compliment. It is not a disrespect. Just a few weeks ago, I had a very interesting uh, uh, feedback that was given. We had a visitor with us, and after the service, she uh, talked to me about the message, and we were talking, if you recall, about by faith, those who were strangers and pilgrims in the world. We talked about what it is to be a stranger and a pilgrim. We went into 1 Peter 2 and went through all these things that make us stand out when we are honoring to our bosses, when we are honest to our, uh, in every facet of our life, and also when we honor and submit to our governmental authorities. And I encouraged us, I said, we should always obey our government leaders. We should be in submission to them. And this woman, after the service, said to me, I was with you right until that point. And she said, but there I disagreed because sometimes we have to disobey our governmental authorities. Now, let me ask you this question. Was our visitor in that piece of feedback that she gave biblically accurate or biblically inaccurate? She was right on. And I hastened to tell her, you are right. I was not intending to say that there is never a place in the Christian's life to disobey, to disobey the government. Now, I'm going to crowdsource the first part of this sermon, and I'm going to ask you, which people in the Bible do we celebrate because they disobeyed their government leaders? I just want you to start throwing out some names. Who are some people that are famous in the Bible for disobedience? Moses was one. I heard Moses. Who else? The apostles. The apostles obeyed God rather than men because what did the, what did the government tell them? Don't preach in the name of Jesus. And they said, sorry, we're going to keep on preaching in the name of Jesus. Who else? Rahab. Rahab hid the spies that came. We're going to see her in later on in this very chapter. She's a hero of faith. A prostitute who hid by faith, the man, the spies that came and was rescued and saved alive. Yes, God can take people from whatever background and make them part of his family. Praise God. Who else? Who else in the Bible? Who? David. 
David absolutely disobeyed. In fact, David was the one who fled from Saul when the king was intending to kill his, to take his life. David knew when to flee and to escape the king's command. Who else? There's another very famous one. Daniel. Did I hear Daniel? Daniel, the one who said, you can tell, you can command me not to pray in the name of any other God. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go and open my window so everyone can see me kneeling three times a day and praying. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you may think of them refusing to bow down and being put into the burning, fiery furnace. We could go on and on. Any, any others? John the Baptist. John the Baptist lost his head because he said to the king, you're, in, you're being immoral. It's not lawful for you to do what you're doing. Jesus himself, of course, Jesus, when he went into the temple and cleared out the temple there, of course, to the horror, I'm sure, of the civil authorities of that day, because he said, you have made my father's house, which is to be a house of prayer. You have made it a house of merchandise. Again, we could go on. There are, there are more than that. But I noticed that none of you said the name of the people we're talking about today. Now, one of you mentioned Moses' parents. Now, here's an interesting point. We just named the famous people who disobeyed. Daniel. Daniel's a biblical hero, right? David, a biblical hero. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Jesus, John the Baptist. All these people, they say, these, we know these people. I want to ask a trivia question today. I'm going I'm to be really excited if even one of you can get it right. What were the names of Moses' parents? Does anyone here know name of the people we will be celebrating as heroes of faith today. Dad and mom. Oh, Dave, you're right on. Dad and mom. Yes, indeed. Dad and mom. I like it. What else? Do you, does anyone know? Amram and Jochebed. Amram and Jochebed, heroes of faith. We'll get back to that in just a minute. But notice what Hebrews 11 says about these heroes of faith, whose names you didn't even know when you came here this morning. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid, literally playing hide and seek, right? He literally hid three months of his parents. His parents hid him for three months because they saw he was a proper child. And they were not afraid of the king's commandment. We will see, as Calvin Todd read for us in the book of Exodus, that there was a command that they fearlessly disobeyed due to their faith. The title of the message today is, By Faith, Fearless Disobedience. By Faith, Fearless Disobedience. Now, none of us may ever be forced in our lifetime, I pray, to decide whether to save our child alive or kill our child at the command of our government. But nonetheless, there are lessons that we can learn from Amram and, Amram and Jochebed's uh, fearless disobedience that will apply, I think, practically to the way you live your life today and in the days ahead. We're going to divide this message just into three very simple parts. First, what they did, what Amram and Jochebed did. Secondly, why they did it. Where is faith in this story? Because it may not be immediately apparent how faith factors in here. And thirdly, what it means for us. What they did, 
why they did it and what it means for us. First of all, what did they do? Let's turn back, if you will, to Exodus chapter 1. Will you keep your finger in uh, or another marker in Hebrews 11? We'll come back to that. But let's go to Exodus. Exodus is the second book in your Bible, Genesis, and then Exodus at the very beginning. Now, where are we here? Last week, we talked about Joseph, that great Jewish That Hebrew man, the descendant of Jacob, who became one of the chief rulers in Egypt, but even at the time of his death was looking ahead to that time when God would bring out the people of Israel from Egypt to the land he had promised them. Now fast forward hundreds of years, and this family, God's family, Jacob and his children and their children and descendants and descendants are now in a land that is not theirs. They are in Egypt. That is not the promised land. That is not where God intended them to end up. And they are multiplying. They are expanding. Now suddenly there is a massive race of people in Egypt that is a strong people and it is scaring the political leaders of that day. The Pharaoh in Egypt. Verse 8 tells us there arose up a new king in Exodus 1 over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto the people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. They were terrified of being replaced by this stronger race of people, the Hebrews. And he said, Come on, let us deal wisely. The idea here is not wisely in a biblical sense, of course, but shrewdly, strategically. Let's be smart about this, he says. Lest they multiply and it come to pass that when there falls out any war, they join also under our enemies and fight against us and so get them up out of the land. What were they concerned about? Egypt is in war and these people that are a part of the land suddenly turn against the Egyptians, fight against them and get their liberty that way. They said, we can't have that. So they made them slaves. They made these people of Israel, this family of God that was in the land of Egypt, they turned them to slavery. And not only that, they decided to exercise what governments across the ages have exercised by various means, population control. They were ordering the slaughter of Hebrew babies. It started first with Pharaoh talking to the midwives, the midwives who were delivering these Hebrew children. And what did they say? If you deliver the baby and it's a girl, all good, no problem. But if you deliver the baby and it is a man, it is a boy, what are you going to do? You're going to kill it. Now that's appalling to us. The idea that someone whose job it is to bring life into the world would turn around and destroy that life. And scripture says that these midwives disobeyed. They themselves fearlessly disobeyed. And they did not carry out the king's order. But notice verse 22. And Pharaoh charged, he commanded all his people saying, Every son that is born ye shall cast into the river. And every daughter ye shall save alive. Now what's he trying to do? He's trying to make sure there are no men. He's trying to make sure there are no men to propagate this Hebrew race. No men to be potential soldiers and warriors against the interests of the Egyptians. He is seeking to keep these people in bondage and slavery. This was a form of racial and ethnic prejudice rooted in fear. 
in fear of political consequences if they didn't act in this unjust way. And in that sense, we can see this same story played out throughout human history even today. When we think of all the people who have been forcibly enslaved for selfish or political purposes, including in our country, in our shameful history, we see this same kind of example brought about. We hear the stories today of what's going on with the Uyghur Muslims in, in the Xinjiang province in China of, of, of genocide being carried out today. This kind of awful treatment being brought about based on someone's race or their ethnicity or their creed. And we are horrified. We think back to the, to the evils of the Holocaust when based on this same kind of racial and ethnic prejudice, a man named Adolf Hitler and those that came with him butchered millions of Jews for their own political and other wicked purposes. This kind of story is not a new story. It is an ancient story. And in fact, it is a story that goes to the core of the wickedness of the human condition. The wickedness of the human condition is, is at its fundamental nature, self-interest, self, as, uh, uh, this prideful self, selfishness that is willing to throw anything out of its way in order to get what it wants. And that's why no matter how hard we try, we see this evil human condition coming out over and over again and causing so much destruction and so much devastation in our world, as I said, even to today. Well, what was the response of the parents? What was the response of Amram and Jochebed when the king said, if you have a son, kill him. If you have a daughter, keep her alive. Notice, go over the chapter divide to Exodus 2 and verse 1. And there went a man of the house of Levi, that's Amram, we are introduced to him later in, in scripture, and took to wife a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived, she got pregnant, and bare a son. And when she saw him, that he, he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. That's exactly what Hebrews 11 was saying. When he was born, he was hid for three months. Did they obey the king's commandment? They had a son. The king's commandment was kill him. And of course, they disobeyed. They saw that he was a, a goodly child, it says here. Hebrews 11 calls him a proper child. And they disobeyed the king's commandment. They refused to kill him. They hid him for three months, and then it says in verse 3, when, when she could no longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes, and she hid him in the river, of making a little boat, a little ark for him. And of course, perhaps you know the story, as we read it this morning, the daughter of the Pharaoh finds him and adopts him to be her own son, because, she says, I drew him out of the water, she named him Moses. So that's what they did. They disobeyed. But what I want us to notice here, if you go back to Hebrews chapter 11 with me, is why they did it. Now let me ask you this. If you had this kind of edict in your political, in your governmental sphere, if this was the order of our state to you as a pregnant mother and said, when you're going into labor, if you have a son, you must kill him. 
and you said after having that baby, I will not kill him, what do you think would be ordinarily motivating you to disobey the king? What would be motivating you? What characteristic? Love. I wouldn't ordinarily say faith caused you not to take the life of your child. You'd say, I looked into that child's eyes and I loved that child. And I said, I would die for this child. And so out of love, I will disobey the king's commandment. But that's not what Hebrews 11 says. Oh, there was love here. Don't get me wrong. There was ordinary mother love. But that's not what Hebrews 11 wants to bring out. Hebrews 11:23 says, by faith, the parents of Moses hid him. What's going on here? Not only that, there's another thing that I, I want to draw out. Notice what it says in verse 23. They, they, they hid him because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. They were fearless. But you might say, wait a second. They hid him. That sounds like fear. They weren't taking him out and walking him down, I don't know, the boulevard of the pharaohs. Hey, everyone, look at our baby. They didn't enter him in the Ramses State Fair in the cute kid contest. They didn't do that. You said, well, that was fearful. They hid him. So what's going on? How can we say this is by faith? And how can we say this was fearless when they hid him? Let's start with the first one of those. How was this faith? Notice what Hebrews 11 wants to tell us. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child. Hmm. Did that strike you as oddly as it struck me? They saw he was a proper child. That's why by faith they did it. And sometimes I think maybe you, you're thinking of this like sitting around a British tea, proper, a proper child. No, that's, that's not what it's saying here. This is a very interesting word, and it's a very interesting concept. The, the underlying Greek word has the idea of coming from a city. See, that's odd. Well, here's the idea of it. You know how we use certain slang terms to say something about a kind of person? We call someone a redneck. When we're calling someone a redneck, we're saying about that person, you're not very sophisticated. You're kind of out there, uh, 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 one of those hillbilly types. If we call someone a cake eater, what we're saying about them is you're privileged. You, right, it's not about that they're eating cake, because probably all of us eat cake. I at least hope so. Cake's amazing. Cake's delicious. We're not saying something about them when we say cake eater. We're bringing, we're saying something about who they are and their background. And this word has the idea of someone who is sophisticated. They're a city slicker. They're a city dweller. They're from the place of importance and prestige. And therefore, it came to have the idea of meaning someone Beautiful, exceptional, well-favored. That was the idea of the word. Now, maybe this also makes us a little confused. They saw he was a beautiful child. They saw he was a sophisticated child. They, they saw he was a favored child. How many of you parents have ever had a little baby and looked at that baby and said, Wow, is he ugly! 
Every single one of us as parents think our children are beautiful. So it's not, it's not standing out that they looked at him and say, wow, beautiful kid. Let's keep him alive, shall we? No, that's not what's going on. So what is going on? There's an answer, I think, when we go to the only other time this word is used in our entire New Testament. Only You could check it in your Strong's Concordance. There's only one other time this word is used in our New Testament. And do you know it's also talking about Moses? So we're on to something, all right? Turn over to Acts chapter 7. Turn over to Acts chapter 7, because I want you to see this, and I think this will give us the, the clue that's going to crack this mystery for us. Acts chapter 7, Stephen, one of the early disciples of Jesus in the early church, a deacon, is publicly preaching to the Jews before he is executed, before he is martyred. And notice when he's going over the history of the Jewish people, in verse 20, he talks about Moses. And he says, in which time Moses was born and was exceeding fair. Same, same word is used, same Greek word. Exceeding fair and nourished up in his father's house three months. You say, Peter, that is a complete mystery. I still don't understand what you're talking about. Well, you need to understand something about the actual Greek that's going on here. Again, I'm sorry, this may feel like, like tutoring or school, but that, sometimes we need to dive into the word of God like this. Actually, do you know what the Greek says literally? It says literally that he was beautiful to God. Now, our King James translators took a kind of not very literal approach to this, and, and they translated it exceeding fair. But in fact, the literal translation, if you're going to literally translate it, you would say Beautiful to God, favored of God. God's name is actually in there. Now you say, well, how does that matter? Well, let's put it together. How was he a beautiful child? How was he a proper child? How was he a favored child? Because they looked on him, and it wasn't just that he looked cute. They looked at him and said, this is a precious gift from God. He is favored of God. He has a purpose from God. God. That's why he was a proper child. Now, some people believe that God actually gave them a message, gave them some indication that Moses had a special part in God's plan, and that was their faith. But whether it was something special or whether it was just something they looked at him and they knew in their deepest core that this was a special person in God's economy, he was favored by God, they said, nuh-uh. We're not killing this one. We're disobeying. This one is in the image of God. He is a proper child. In other words, that's why Hebrews 11 can say it wasn't just love that made them disobey the king's commandment. It was faith because they looked at him and they said, God, this one is from you. Like every one of our children are. Every one of our children are given us as a heritage of the Lord. Every one of our children have a special purpose in God's economy. In fact, 1 Corinthians tells us that every, one, every child who is born to believing parents, even one believing parent, is sanctified, is set apart as something special by God. It was by faith they said, God's involved in this, not just the king. 
In other words, what we need to recognize is that what faith does is faith looks to what it cannot see, to God's purposes, to God's plan. And what we see about God's plan overshadows what we see directly in front of us. You say, how can it be that they were fearless in this? They hid him. They didn't want anyone to see him. Yeah. But what they weren't afraid of was the king's commandment. Because what was right in front of their face, the soldiers, the chance of their own death if they were caught, that didn't matter as much as what they couldn't see. God and his purposes for that child. You see, this is what faith does. Faith is the substance of things that we can't see. It substantiates what we cannot see. It is evidence. It is proof to us of things that we can't see in the future that we are only hoping for. And here, these parents had a command that they could see. They could see Pharaoh's soldiers. They could see the consequences coming to them if they disobeyed. But the purposes and plans of God was more important to them than the army of the king and his power over them. And in the face of that commandment, they were fearless. They said, we will not obey. We will hide this precious gift from God by faith. Now let's pause there as we go to what they did and why they did it and ask why this matters for us. What effect does this have on our life? Like I said, I I trust and hope that none of you will be placed in the conundrum of whether your government commands you to kill one of your children. So how might this apply to your life? Three things I want to suggest that this may affect the way we live our life by faith. The first is this. It is the possibility of civil disobedience. It is the possibility of civil disobedience. What is civil disobedience? It's when the government tells you to do something and you disobey. Throughout the Bible and throughout Christian history, people have understood that at various times in the life of of their life and the life of their country, they were forced to disobey because they said, we will obey God rather than men. And friends, there may come a time in this country or in a country that God sends you to in the future that you will be forced to look your government squarely in the eye and say, no, we will not obey. And there is a biblical rationale, there's a biblical basis behind this kind of civil disobedience that these parents, Amram and Jochebed, did and that we see elsewhere in Scripture. I see at least three reasons in the Bible that you and I are called to disobey our government. One is to avoid destructive evil to yourself. Jesus told his disciples, when they persecute you in one city, flee to another city. Do you know it is perfectly appropriate and acceptable that when your government is trying to bring destructive evil to you or your family, that you can disobey them and say, absolutely not, I will not stand under this kind of treatment. You can flee, as we see Jesus indeed commanding his disciples to do. So fleeing destructive evil we see in the Bible is a reason to disobey your leaders, even though in the normal, ordinary course, you are commanded to obey them, to submit to them, to honor them. This is an important biblical command. There's another one. 
It is when you have to disobey your government to obey God. If you have to obey God, you always do, even if someone else says no. If your government says you may not preach in the name of Jesus Christ, we're closing down this church, you know what we do? We'd keep on meeting no matter the consequences because we say it's better to obey God than to obey man. If someone told us you cannot continue on in this aspect of what scripture expressly commands you to do, we say, I'm sorry, we obey God, we do not obey men. These Hebrew midwives were commanded, you kill children. They said, nope, God says don't kill. We're not going to do that. They disobeyed. What about Daniel? He was told, you don't pray to any other God. Daniel said, nope, I obey God. I pray to him. And he did it publicly. He did it openly. And there may come a time yet in our country where you are commanded to violate your, the commands of God, the moral law of God, and your response in that day will need to be a fearless, no, I will not, because I will obey God and I will take the consequences. There is a third reason we see in the Bible that we disobey our government, and that is when to obey our government or not to disobey would make us complicit in moral evil. You disobey your government when following them would force you to join yourself with evil that is being done. The primary biblical example of this is Esther. Esther, as a Jew, her people were going to be slaughtered. She was the queen. No one knew that she was a Jew And Mordecai told her, you're going to have to go to the king. And she said, it's against the law. No one can go to the king unless the king invites them first. And she said, and what, what, what was her conclusion? She said, so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. Because what did she know? She wasn't being asked to kill anybody. But she knew that if she didn't disobey, she would be complicit in the death of the Jews because she could stop it. Friends, there may be times in our country where to avoid being complicit in moral evil, you must disobey. We think of Harriet Tubman, a very um, strong Christian woman who was said of her, of Harriet Tubman, I never met any person of any color who had more confidence in the voice of God Of course, Harriet Tubman, the one in the Underground Railroad who saved upwards of 300 slaves by bringing them out of the South. We think of the other countless Christians who fought, who, 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 who used political means and other means to end slavery in this country based on their Christian conviction of faith. We think of those who disobeyed other morally unjust commands because they felt that if they did not, they would be complicit in that evil. We think of those in Nazi Germany in the 1940s who decided that they would disobey their government because they could not be complicit in the death of the Jewish people. In fact, one of the most famous of those was Corey Ten Boom. You remember the Ten Boom family who had this hiding place in their house where Jews would come in and get sanctuary, would get safety in a hidden room in their house. There's this powerful story that Corey Ten Boom tells in her book, The Hiding Place. A pastor was, was with them 
and there was a Jewish mother and a Jewish little baby. And the story goes, Corey Ten Boom says that she asked her pastor if he would take in this Jewish baby, hide this Jewish baby, and her pastor said, no, I can't, it's too dangerous. He said, Corey, don't you know you could lose your life for this? And Corey said that her father, Casper Ten Boom, an elderly man, came into the room or was there as he heard this. And, it, this, and, and she said that her father took up this little Jewish baby. She said this beard just brushed across this child as he looked at it. And he said these words. He said, you say we could lose our lives for this child. I would consider that the greatest honor that could come to my family. Later on, as he continued to hide children, the Gestapo came to his door. They arrested him. They arrested his family. They brought him to the concentration camp. They brought him to prison. And it's, it is said that at, at their seeing Casper Ten Boom's old age, he was in his 80s at the time, one of the Nazi guards was saying, I, basically, I want to let you go. You're old. Just tell me you're not going to get into any more trouble. And here is what Casper Ten Boom's recorded to have said. He said, if I go home today, tomorrow I will open my door again to any man in need who knocks. He was held in prison, and about 10 days later, he was dead. He died. Now, put yourself in that shoe. What caused Casper Ten Boom to look at that Jewish baby and say, it would be an honor if I could die for this child? The same thing that caused Amram and Jochebed to look in their parents' eyes and say, I would die for this child. It's faith because Casper Ten Boom looked at a Jewish baby and said, you are made in the image of God. You have been fearfully and wonderfully made as Calvin Todd brought out for us. You have a purpose. You are loved by God and therefore you have value even though your society tells you you do not. And by faith, I will disobey. Friends, do you know how this church was founded over 40 years ago? when Roger Magnuson and Dave Thorson looked in the faces of about 30 children who were being told, at least being felt that they were told, you have no value, you have less value than others. And they said, no, you have value in our sight and we will make a church to minister to you. That was the heritage that we have in this church. We have a heritage of going out wherever we are in this city to those who feel like they are left behind, whose society does not value, whose lives do not matter to the world around them. And we take the gospel to them and share life with them and say, you do matter. Your life is valuable. You are precious in God's sight because you are an image bearer of God. And if the time comes that we need to stand on that message and doing so will require civil disobedience, we say yes, because we go on God's worth, God's valuation of people, not the governments, not the cultures, not the societies. Friends, is that your commitment by faith? to give of yourselves for the lives of others and for the lives of your children, not even out of first and foremost love, but out of faith in who God is and what he has made people to be. Now I give this caution right alongside it. Civil disobedience should be the last of our alternatives, of our options. It should be done soberly. It should be done righteously. But it needs to be done. 
Do you know what faith does to your civil disobedience? It grounds it and it shapes it and it founds it. You see, there is a rebellious spirit that is going around our country today. And it is various times in our history that rebellion brings up people who shake their fist at the government and said, I will not. How dare you tread on me? They're not acting by faith. Because faith is not bitter. Faith is not hostile. Faith is not vengeful. Faith does not shake its fist and say, don't tread on me. That's not what faith does. Because faith isn't looking at that government official. Faith isn't looking at that king. Faith isn't looking at Pharaoh. Faith is looking above Pharaoh. Faith is looking above the king. Faith is looking into the face of God and saying, I'm obeying you. And therefore, I have to disobey anyone who tells me to disobey you. You see, don't follow those who tell you that you need to civilly disobey for political ends because you need to stick it to the man. It was horrifying, I think, when, for many of us as we heard um, the testimony recently of the, the storming of the Capitol and people carrying Christian flags. I wish they had never done that. They should have left them at home. God had nothing to do with that rebellion. He had nothing to do with that lawlessness. Nothing. And we must be careful lest we get whipped up into a spirit of rebellion and think we're civilly disobeying when honestly we're just bringing disrepute to the cause of Christ in the world. No, faith is that which allows us to have a spirit of submission even to our government officials, but still look them in the face and say, I will not obey you. It is what allowed Jesus to look at the, a man named Pilate who was sending him to death and honor him and respect him for his position, but look him right in the face and say, you would have no power over me except it were given you from above. That's fearlessness. That's the kind of courage that allows faith to disobey when God calls us to do it. So first of all, let this teach you about civil disobedience, the possibility that you may one day need to stand against your government or your leaders and by faith, not by anger, not by bitterness, by faith, say, I must obey God. But secondly, notice the place of fear. This teaches something about the place of fear in our lives. Do you think Amram and Jochebed didn't have any nervousness when they were hiding their son? Do you think Esther, when she was going in to visit the king and potentially risk her life, had any butterflies? Do you think she was nervous? Of course. Sometimes we think, oh, I can't be a person of faith if I feel fear. No, it's absolutely not the case. Do you know that all of us feel, feel fear? I think of this when it comes to witnessing I, th I wonder whether some people excuse witnessing or telling the, 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 the gospel to people because they say, you know what, I'm not like those people who, who are never afraid of talking to people. I feel really nervous. I can't do it. I'm not like the pastor. I'm not like those people. They can do it. They're not afraid. Friends, do you know the exact same nervousness that you feel telling someone about the, about the, the gospel? I do too. In fact, I talked to someone, this pastor who for every day for years, literally every single day, went out to give out tracts and witness for the gospel. And I was talking to him about whether he ever was nervous. And he said, you know, every time I go out, when I, when I go out to talk to people for the gospel, he said that first time before I did it, he said, I, 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 every time I feel that, he said, but then I do it and, and I'm fine. I'm okay. We all feel fear. 
David, this man who was fearless, who took on a giant and killed him, who took on a lion and a bear and killed them. He had this fearless faith in God, looked up to God in the Psalms and says, what time I am afraid, I will trust in you. David was a fearful man. Faith isn't about eradicating fear. It's just about not letting fear control you. It's about not letting fear paralyze you. And what faith does is when it is confronted with this kind of situation, it might feel the flutters, it might feel anxious, it might feel nervous, but that nervousness never shuts it down. It never paralyzes you because by faith you say, I see God over my own fear, over, the, over my own risks, over my own nerves. You know, friend, whether it's telling your neighbor or someone else about the love of God for them, whether it's going out and knocking on doors in this community, whether it's standing up at some point in the future and disobeying your government, you may feel afraid. But recognize that doesn't mean you can't be fearless because your fear will not overcome that faith that God has a purpose for you to accomplish. There's something else about this, I think, that is important for us. Did you notice that fear was not, uh, faith, I should say, was not incompatible with their wise action, with hiding that baby, with keeping him away for three months? And sometimes we have people who will, who will act like they are acting fearlessly and they will say, oh, it is, it is, it is faithless. It is only fearful to take precautions, to take medicine, to take vaccines or this or that or the other. They say that's incompatible with faith. No, it's not. Faith can include acting wisely, just like these parents did. It's not, it does not mean fearfulness. Faith and wise action can go together. As Charles Spurgeon said, faith effectively is sanctified common sense. It is looking at God and seeing him and valuing him and acting wisely in regard to that. One more thing that I want to talk about. First, the possibility of civil disobedience. Secondly, the place of fear in our lives. And finally, the parenting of faith. We shouldn't forget that these were parents, Amram and Jochebed. They looked at that child and they knew he was precious in God's sight, and so they disobeyed. And friends, we all have felt around us the conformity, the push of our culture and of our world that wants to affect the way you and I parent our children. It may not be a law of the government, but it is nonetheless the commandment, the compulsion of the world around us. They say, you can't have that many children. That's irresponsible. And we say, no, you don't understand. Children are a blessing from the Lord. And we will allow him to tell us how we should parent our family. They say, no, you can't discipline your children using that method that the Bible talks about. You can't discipline your children in that. That's wrong. We say, no, I'm sorry. The Bible tells us how we should discipline our child and we're going to do it his way. They tell us you have to allow them to choose their gender. You need to allow them to tell you whether they're a boy or a girl. And we say, no, I'm sorry, at the beginning, God made them male and female, and we will do it his way. They say, you need to let your children sexually experiment and decide who they're attracted to. And we say, no, I'm sorry, we follow God's way. 
We are going to do things his way, no matter what you say, no matter the consequences to us. They say you need to allow your children to decide whatever faith or whatever creed they need to follow. And we say, no, we're going to teach our children what the Bible says and who Jesus is. Because we obey God, we don't obey you. Parents, whether you're a young parent now or whether you're going to be a parent one day, remember that God gave you your children. They are precious in his sight. They have an eternal purpose in his eyes. And that means no matter what your government or what the culture or what the society around your work tells you, there is a God in heaven who has told you and has instructed you how to raise your children in the fear and the nurture of the Lord. And our job, like Amram and Jochebed, in whatever, whatever capacity that is, is to fearlessly say we will obey God rather than men. I want to hold before you in this regard a kind of fearless disobedience that looks at the risks and the commands that are contrary to God's will and purpose and say by faith, fearlessly, we will obey God. Friends, history may never know your name, You didn't know Amram and Jochebed before you came in here today by name. And history may never know your name, but that's okay. No matter how anonymously, no matter how privately, no matter how in a small corner wherever you are, you just commit by faith to obey God and follow what he has directed you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this testimony of these who perhaps before today were anonymous to us. And yet they are recorded as heroes of faith. Because when it came time to fearlessly disobey, in order that they might obey you, they acted by faith. Father, this is a message that we need your wisdom on. Because our spirit can be so affected by the winds of political and cultural and social around us. Father, we need your discernment and we need to know what it is to act by faith. Father, would you ground us in your word and would your spirit direct us to apply this message like you want us to? Let's pause for a moment. However, God is speaking to you this morning. Would you listen? Would we each examine our spirit this morning to say, am I acting by faith? Am I walking by faith? Am I acting fearlessly by faith in what God has called me to do? And friend, if you've never taken that first step of asking Jesus to save you by faith, giving your life to him, may you take that first step today by calling on the name of the Lord.